If there were time, I would love to have a conversation with each each of you to find out what brings you here. To find out what are the things in your life, inner and outer, that mean you'll dedicate a week or some of you here for longer, a week of your time to the study of your own heart-mind. What moves you to come? What is it you want? What is at the center of this journey for you? And it's really useful to examine it um, and update ourselves, even though some of you have been practicing for years, to update ourselves of what actually gets us here to the cushion. What is each sitting dedicated to for you, not what you think it should be dedicated to? But what's really in your heart with regard to practice? Because it's said in one of the texts in the Tibetan tradition that everything rests on the tip of motivation. Our motivation, what inspires us, what brings us here, what we care about, what moves us to sit on our seat, is worth clarifying for ourselves, worth getting clear about what that is. It has an effect. It influences our journey. Because what our heart truly loves, what our heart deeply desires, the peace that we seek, the rest that we want, the waking up that we yearn for, the coming home, however we would put it, each of us. We need to know it. We need to make it more and more to the foreground so that it's there when we come into the sitting. And it doesn't always stay alive for us. We can lose sight of it, and that's part of why I'm bringing it to mind now. And part of why I'm getting those of you who are experienced to update, because it can change how we would word that to ourselves. So I offer just a couple of possibilities um, this evening, but please find your own words, because there has to be an interaction between what we're presenting in terms of the Buddha's map, his brilliant map, derived through his own direct experience that has lasted a very long time because of its relevance, actually, to human beings, that continues. The, the, the Buddha's map, where does that meet your heart? What is it in your heart? Because it has to be your personal heart here and not trying to kind of fit yourself into somebody's scheme. So the possibilities I offer. Some people come to meditation because they love it. Some people, and that might sound strange to some others, because <laughs> it's hard sometimes, right? But loving the very form of sitting and walking, something about it naturally ennobles the spirit and the being. And they just love coming back. It's better than going on holiday, right? You might not be there yet today. Right, holiday might seem more attractive. Some people 
it's the sense of the love of deepening, the love of what can be discovered, the adventure of what might show up, what shows up when I look deeply. Some of us come from a very clear sense of suffering, of unsatisfactoriness, of something... (coughs) Come on in. Something that has not come to rest, something that is grating in the being, or constantly feeling like we're hitchhiking through this world, never quite landing. I asked, I think I asked this a couple of weeks ago, and somebody said, actually, I, I came to this retreat to see the garden at Gaia House mm-hmm. in the springtime. Maybe it's that. Maybe you love Gaia House. Fine. We're not trying to make a hierarchy of motivations. You know, those, those that come for the salad are not allowed to stay. Only those that want you know, full liberation can stay. What really is in your heart? Some it's the community, and we may have a mixture of all of these, the community of beings that sit in silence together. One teacher said, I practice meditation so that I do not miss the purple flowers in the hedgerows that otherwise I would miss. That sense of not wanting our life to pass us by, The urgency sometimes of, hold on a minute, the years are passing, what is it? What is this for? And it may be expressed in an urgency or in that simple way that he articulated it. I don't want life to pass me by. Be on my deathbed wondering, what was that? What was all that? And you may word it a different way. But please... um, Let it be clear to you. Let it be central for you. Because it's not the easiest journey. The spiritual journey is known. It's not an easy one. It's not one we turn to, um, usually because there's nothing, we don't usually turn to it just because there's nothing else to do. And yet we can easily lose sight of what it is that is central for us in it. So we might pick that up um, over the week just to get current with that reflection for you because it's where our energy is as well. What you really care about, what's central to your heart is where your energy is. So you, we all come with these, you know, maybe you have a motivation, I just want the stillness. I, I long and yearn for the stillness. All the motivations are welcome, and where they unite is in the only place that transformation and insight can happen, which is right here and now. The only place for stillness, the only place for discovery of what this life is about The only place to deepen our love of truth and exploration is right here. And yet, in your first day of being here, we see how difficult it is to get here, to land here. Our mind can be anywhere else but here. 
And yeah, we yearn for freedom, we yearn for peace, we, we long for homecoming, and it can be difficult at first. This quote I like from William James, he said, Human beings are in a ceaseless frenzy. I don't know if any of you have noticed that in your mind. You don't look like you're in a ceaseless frenzy on the outside today, and maybe some of you aren't on the inside either. But usually when we stop the ceaseless frenzy on the outside, it gets more clear to us, the kind of frenzy that's going on on the inside. Did anybody notice that today? Right. He says, human beings are in a ceaseless frenzy, characterized by always thinking we should be doing something else. Anybody have that thought today? (laughs) And maybe some of you didn't. Right, But it's a really common one, especially in the beginning. We've signed up, we may have been looking forward to it or not looking forward to it, but at least you know, some relationship to coming. We get here, yes, I long for peace and freedom, but I don't want to be here. Right? I should be doing something else, shouldn't I? I should be doing my accounts, should be tidying that wardrobe that's been a mess for 30 years, you know. So this characterization, this ceaseless frenzy characterized by always thinking we should be doing something else. This is the momentum of samsara, the ceaseless movement, the ceaseless movement and never coming to rest. So we're going to learn how to work with that mind, not to try and force it into cessation. That is called suppression. Freedom is not about suppressing anything, actually. And we're going to learn how to work more and more with that mind. But tonight I want to begin with where we all begin and in some ways I could say where we end as well, to talk a little bit about uh, a quality of what you are, one of the qualities of what each one of us is. So I just want to see how it strikes you when I say the word. You are an openness. You are an openness. It's closer to us. The openness of what we are is closer to us than any of our thoughts, any of our feelings, any of our pain, the fact that we are undeniably, inevitably an openness. Now, I don't know how it strikes you when I say it, and it sounds like I'm declaring something. You don't have to believe me. You might say, no, I'm not. (laughs) I'm a tight closeness. Thank you very much. Don't tell me I'm an openness. All right. But I put it out at the beginning and I offer it for your contemplation also at the beginning of the retreat. 
It's something often on these retreats we get to at the end. Right? But the end point in Dharma practice is actually to realize what is already here. Dharma practice is not to fix you, actually. It's not self-help, deeply. It's not to organize a better personality. It's to liberate what is already here. And what is already here is already here. We may not realize it, but it's already here. So, a little bit about openness as a beginning condition. You, You are an openness. You're open to the fact to come here. You cannot actually sign up, I do not think, for a retreat at Gaia House without some openness. Openness is a necessary condition for coming somewhere new at all, for learning anything new, for seeing anything new, for discovery. And if you think about it, we, each of us, begin life as an openness. I don't know when each of you last had contact with a new little human being, a a small baby. You can see very clearly if you have the chance to be with a small, small one of these kind, these human kinds, you can see very clearly the openness, this kind of unself-consciousness in the eyes. Now, they're not liberated or wise necessarily, but they are open. Right? There's an openness. It's undeniable. There's a kind of clear passage in a very small little one, a clear passage. It feels what it feels. It experiences what it experiences. The doors haven't closed down yet to experience. It's impacted by what it's impacted by. And as we grow from being a little one, you know, until we start to close down a little bit and get a little bit more structured and defended, there's a way that that little one would express what it feels. It doesn't have necessarily the maturity. It usually kind of, you know... If it loves something, it runs towards it. If it doesn't like something, it says, I don't like you. Right? It doesn't necessarily have a maturity and a wisdom with it. But many of us confuse maturity with closing down around the openness that we are. That the conventional view is like... Um, a little bit more of a defended, defensive stance with the view that if I'm open, I'm going to be overwhelmed like I might have been as a little one. We confuse openness with a vulnerability. As we practice, as we go through the days, we may feel vulnerable places. And this isn't an error. It's not a mistake. As we become more sensitive... And that vulnerability is on the way. 
to the rediscovery of the openness that we are, that is undefended, that is open. And as we wake up as adults, there's a maturity and an awareness and a wisdom that knows how to handle that openness. Right now, so this isn't the end of the retreat, but right now, you may just contemplate for a moment that this openness that you are is aware, is awake, knows what is arising right now. So if I do an experiment right now and I say to you, a little bit like I said this morning, but it was a bit different, right now I say to you, stop being aware. What do you notice? Close, close it down. Close down the awareness right now. You might start to become aware that the awareness itself is here. The openness itself is here. What tends to happen is in our life, as we grow up, we start to identify with all the things that pass through this open space. All the um, structures, all the defenses, all the patterns, all the ideas about myself and my world. They're the things that I get busy with. They're the things that I take to be me. And we lose touch with the openness that we are. If you think about the Buddha, if I think about the Buddha, one of the things I um, imagine about him is that he was very open, very open. And that openness itself is what allowed him to discover what he discovered, and to be able to teach. The openness was what allowed him to respond to each of his students. He didn't come from a pre-existing set of knowledge of, okay, this is what I'm going to do with you. But actually, openness allows us to be in relationship and allows us to respond appropriately. So this is where we can really see the applicability of this openness in our life, in our relationships, um, as we move through, as we journey from our retreat. Somebody, I like this story, somebody once asked the Zen master, What was the Buddha doing during her life? Isn't the Zen there, poetic? What was the Buddha doing during her life? And the response from the Zen master was an appropriate response. That that's what the Buddha was doing during his life. The capacity to respond comes from the rediscovery of our openness. (laughs) 
And just to give you a little bit of the framework, um, probably most of you know the teaching of the four truths, the four noble truths. From the perspective of openness, the first truth that there is suffering, there is stress, there is unsatisfactoriness. From the perspective of openness, when we do not know the openness that we are, we can't help it, but by default we cling to the nearest, loudest thing that comes into awareness. And it might be my body, it might be my feelings, it might be my thoughts, my ideas, someone else. And in that very clinging, we start to close down around the openness that we are. So I just offer this at the beginning of the retreat, and again, we'll pick it up later, because a lot of what we're dealing with in the first days of our retreat, in our path, is not the openness. I mean, openness, no problem. Appropriate response, no problem. We're working very often with the ways we have got structured, the ways we have got defended, the ways we have closed down and tightened around this and and to form this separate sense of who I am. So that's what we're going to give more and more detail to. So I want to speak a little bit about the meditation. How does the meditation today that we've been engaged in, how does this support our heart's deepest desire for freedom, for peace, for stillness? Before, when um, I was reflecting on the talk and I was talking to Natiko upstairs, he said, um, and when you give the talk, give some examples from your life. And 20 minutes into the talk, I'm thinking, actually, I don't think I've given many examples here. So what I might ask us all to do is, when I, I might pause here and there and see if there's an example that arises, might arise here. <laughs> it might arise in this location. It may arise in that location. Or I might ask you if there are any examples. Right? So we can make it concrete and tangible for us. So how was it today for you to practice mindfulness of body in the sitting meditation? How was it for you today in the guided meditation this afternoon to be guided so beautifully into sensing your coccyx, your sit bones, your belly, your thighs? What happened for you? Were they available for you? Did you space out? Did you come back? Did you fall asleep? Did you, were you mindful of various parts of the body? <coughs> One of the things we see is that it's really not that easy to tune our attention to something, as Natiko talked about it, that's not so exciting, that doesn't rev us up so much that doesn't shout like your coccyx, unless it's hurting you, doesn't kind of go, hey, hey, I'm here. You know, pay attention here. So we're learning to tune the attention in a very fine way. What you may see 
is the ways that our attention does not land very easily with something so neutral. How often or how how able are you to make contact with the experience of the sit bones, the coccyx, the belly, the arms, the eye sockets, to meet it directly before you turn it into descriptions, dogmas, positions. So now I'm going to see if I can give an example. Right. There you are, 4.15. Teacher at the front says, Okay, now bring your attention to your coccyx. Perhaps you didn't feel anything there. Perhaps there was an absence of sensation there. How quick before that got turned into a secondary layer of experience? For example, well, coccyx, tailbone. I don't feel anything there. Oh my God, I'm supposed to feel something there. Oh, he says it's really important in Indian spiritual traditions to feel something in your coccyx. Oh no, I'm a, I'm a failure. I, I, I've never been able to feel my coccyx and clearly that's the most important thing now for the, the journey and, and I'm a spiritual failure. And if I think about it, I don't even know why I signed up for the retreat. You know, I, I knew I was a failure before I came here and, and my parents, they weren't very spiritual, so what did I think I was doing coming to Guy House? And before we know it, we've spun into a story, made a position for ourselves, and actually lost contact with the real experience, which was an absence of sensation. No one said you had to feel anything in particular in your coccyx. Absence of sensation is also an experience. Or it may turn into, I don't feel anything. I didn't come here to feel my coccyx. I came here for enlightenment. This is ridiculous. I've come to the wrong retreat. And off we go, building another story, moving away into the views and the dogmas of our mind and losing contact. We so quickly bounce from experience. It takes a certain training to tune the attention to something that is a direct perception. So right now I want to invite you to into the realm of direct perception. It's not something that you can do, but it's something that we can recognize. Right? First one will be an easy one. So letting the senses be open. Direct perception is the contact of the sight, sound, smell, taste, touch in the immediacy, not mediated by all our ideas. It's direct, it's fresh, it makes an impression, and it's known and recognized. 
we're interested in direct perception. One of the gifts of the Buddha, actually, is that to certain questions, people would ask him things like, you know, do I exist? Do I not exist? Is there a self? Is there not a self? And he was very clear about only answering questions that supported someone to lead onward toward the goal. A lot of questions he wouldn't answer. Swami said, that's not relevant. Come directly in to this phenomenological experiment, the experiment and the meditation of being with the phenomena just as they are. Your foot touching the earth today, your foot touching the floor. Can you resonate with that experience? Can you see the way the habitual mind reacts to it? I don't like it. I want it to be different. I want my breath to be different. It's too boring. Or we get a pain in the body and we get afraid. We move away, we push it away. Coming into direct experience is actually extremely radical. It's extremely radical and it's the, um, the only place from which insight arises, true insight that transforms us. True transformation can really only occur when we've let go of all of what we already know about the world. If we want something new to happen, if we want to perceive more deeply, we are asked to let go of doing things the same old way. And this is a big ask. So this doorway of direct perception, of the porridge as it touches your tongue, as the coffee, I don't know if there's coffee out there. Is there coffee out there? No coffee out there. Okay, as you're longing for coffee, (laughs) whatever it might be, is felt, or the tea touches your tongue and slips down your throat. This direct, fresh, open, immediate contact, because what is our alternative? Our alternative is to be an organism of repetition, repeating what is known in the same cycles, externally and internally. You know how that goes, right? In relationships, the characters may change, the players on the stage may change, but we find ourselves reenacting the same pattern. So this radical encounter, which requires actually a courage to step out of what is already known, and you're doing that every time you let your foot land on the earth, And you feel it. Every time you breathe with your body and you're just there, just for for a moment, in that moment you've stepped out of the, the known, of only looking at our experiences through the lenses of what is familiar. Oh, breath, so what? Who cares? And then there's the possibility of this organism of repetition that keeps ending up in dead ends or in unsatisfactory cycles to become and to know itself as an organism of receptivity, 
an organism of direct perception, an organism of the adventure of seeing clearly. Sometimes we have to get really convinced first, though, that we're tired of being an organism of repetition. Because probably for many of you today, you've seen repetitive cycles coming through the mind, right? The stories about yourself, you know, whether they're positive ones or negative ones. I'm, I'm, I'm probably the worst person here. I, you know, I... You know, that, that loop. Or actually, if I look around, I might be one of the best. You know, there could be that loop. When a way we have to get tired enough of these loops, and it takes some convincing. Some of our patterning is very intoxicating. It's very enticing. I remember one man on retreat um, in, a, in another country from here, and he was a screenwriter. So a very creative mind, very brilliant and creative mind. And he, he hadn't studied much about Buddha Dharma, and he came for the first interview on the second day. I think it was a small group. And he said, ah, oh, I don't know about all this here and now stuff, he said. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's from the 60s. You know, so he didn't know that the legacy was beyond, uh, longer than that. He said, I love my, my mind. He says, it's brilliant. Now I'm on meditation, and I've got all these great new ideas coming, and... I'm just ready to go. He said, I'm not convinced. I said, oh, fine, fine. And there's nothing wrong with the brilliancy and the creativity. But if we're interested in discovering something new, then we're asked to come into this direct perception. On the fourth day, he came for, he signed up for an interview and he said, help, I'm so sick of my mind. He said, it just doesn't stop. You know, it's like I've got more and more brilliant ideas, but help, get me out of here. Is there anything else? And it was at that point that then there's that kind of enough divine dissatisfaction, in a way, to be willing to put the work in, to be willing to let go of even the best stories our mind tells us. Because our heart is called, our heart-mind is called to know something else that doesn't deny the creativity, but is something more fundamental than that. That when we're not in contact with, we feel bereft. We feel the loss of contact with that. I remember another guy on retreat who um, he was on a retreat one year here and at some point he left the retreat and I knew this chap, I knew him and he left the retreat and uh, he may have left a note, I'm not sure actually no, he didn't leave a note but anyway, he left the retreat and a year later he came back and he said um, 
do you know what I realized last year? He said, I was on a retreat <coughs> with you and someone else. And he said, something happened on about the second day, and I got really irritated. He said, and I didn't realize what was happening. But the next thing I knew, the next moment I was aware, I was halfway down the A38 to Plymouth, which is about probably 15 miles from here. There were no moments of mindfulness between this bouncing off something that happened. You know, and there can, there'll be contacts here that irritate us. Right? Something happened, contact happened, he bounced, he didn't catch what was going on. It was probably two hours later, 15 miles later, that he, got, he woke up and went, oh, what's going on here? And he said the following year what he realized was that for him, he'd always considered that as a freedom to be able to cut and go. And it's probably true for him that at a certain point in his life, it was a freedom and was necessary. But what he realized this time was that wasn't freedom, he said. That was reactivity. He said, and I really want to find out. He said, there's no freedom in that bouncing off of things and moving into my pattern. Whether our pattern's to go, to stay, it's not making going or staying the correct condition. Sometimes we need to go. But it's learning what is coming out of the organ of repetition and what is coming from the truth of the organ of sensitivity, receptivity, and direct perception. And then there's freedom. Then our action is more likely to be an appropriate response. So this is the relationship of direct perception, something so simple and mundane as being with your breath, so ordinary as sipping your cup of tea, because all of those moments are part of conditioning the heart and mind, supporting the heart and mind to be here when the waves really come. It's not the only point of practice. But when the waves really come, do they knock us for six? Or has the channel been opened, rediscovered and openness so the waves can also move through the channel of openness that we are? without us having to tighten or clamp or constrain through fear and misunderstanding. I think I just want to say one more thing for this first evening. Hmm. And I'm pausing because I'm wondering about one more thing out of the four more things that I've thought about.
maybe briefly in a little bit of the context of the meditation practice. In insight meditation, we could say that there are two um, arms to it, two arms to it, that aren't mutually exclusive, but it can be useful to talk about them separately. And the first one is the aspect of practice that is called samadhi, um, otherwise translated as calmness, calm abiding, can be translated as the unification of mind, where, where all the sort of fragmented aspects of us have kind of come together and we're here. It has a presence to it. We have a presence to us where there's a kind of a, a firmness of groundedness that is present, it's palpable. In contrast to the, um, I don't know if ever you experience yourself, as you practice further along the path, you might see this, that sometimes we're more like a Picasso picture. You know the Picasso pictures where the head's kind of going up that way and part of the body's over that way and, you know, our head can be somewhere other than Gaia House, our heart can be somewhere completely different. Bits of our bodies are aching. The samadhi, the mindfulness of body and the mindfulness of the body breathing This first arm is supporting a skillful reconditioning. It's a skillful karma. It's a skillful patterning. Not all of our patterns are bad patterns. Mindfulness of breathing is a skillful pattern that allows us to come to rest a little more. And this is what we've begun with today. This sense of the letting the breathing experience be the conditioner of the body-mind. The samadhi aspect is married with the aspect of insight, of the capacity to see deeply into the nature of experience. And we'll speak more about that. We'll go progress more along that way as the days go. Sometimes in meditation circles, we have teachings about samadhi. And this won't be the case if you're a beginner. The beginner's mind is often more open, actually. It's usually when we've got a meditation history that we need... um, certain teachings again. Sometimes we hear the word samadhi and it's also translated as concentration. Right? That we think we have to concentrate ourselves in order to meditate. And I'm doing this gesture. This doesn't really mean concentration, but a lot of us have the sense that concentration means I have to kind of tighten up, squeeze down, kind of put my head under the blanket and sort of force myself into a small little ball to get concentrated because I have to kind of pull my thoughts in and my wayward emotions and, right? If any of you have that legacy of trying too hard with concentration where it becomes a kind of willful, um, tight endeavor, 
This is something that we do not want to encourage in this retreat. When the Buddha spoke about the um, the unification of mind, it was very natural. It's something that happens naturally when we include the whole body, when we include the body breathing. And yes, the mind will disappear and we come back. But we practice in this gentle, open way. And the samadhi develops. The firming up develops. The presence gets manifested. And this becomes the platform for a very open and easeful looking deeply into the nature of things. So I just want to caution some of us who have that tendency to willfully clamp in our meditation. We hear mindfulness of breath and the image in our mind becomes like a, a lobster claw, like, right, I've got to get my breath and <laughs> become mindful of it. Because we're often afraid of the openness. Right? And if I don't clamp down, I'm not going to find that breath and I'm not going to get it and I'm not going to do it right. And I'll be right? learning to trust the openness that we are and our deepest intention for peace, for freedom, for homecoming. Can we trust that those ingredients of your beautiful intention for getting here and the naturalness of your openness, we put in the legwork, we sit and we walk, and the presence is cultivated. Practice unfolds more easily when we're allowed to be natural. We have this very apparently unnatural form of sitting and walking. And, right? But within that, to let ourselves be very open and natural. The support for homecoming, when we allow ourselves to be natural, is also natural. So let's sit for a minute together to finish.
May all beings recognize the openness of their nature. May all beings know the presence of their nature. And may all beings know peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.